This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Matt Mattis is a well-known horticulturalist, plantsman, gardener, and author. His Growing with Plants blog and his first book, Mastering the Art of Vegetable Gardening, are both inspirational and aspirational for gardeners of all levels. Matt joins us this week from the PRX Podcast Garage in Cambridge, Massachusetts, to share more about his interesting and sometimes unlikely journey as a plantsman and how and why plants people matter. Matt's at work on a new book about interesting flower garden additions, both new and old. Welcome, Matt. Hi, Jennifer. So, Matt, bona fide plant geek, tell us what your life in plants looks like right now on a kind of day-to-day basis. Oh, my gosh. Well, I love that term, plant geek, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we all seem to know each other. Um, yes. It's been terribly busy or, or wonderfully busy um, this summer in particular because Mastering the Art of Vegetable Gardening apparently has been selling well. So the publisher sort of put on fast track this second book, Mastering the Art of Flower Gardening. And so I'm trying to complete it in half the time that I did the other book. So that's been consuming most of my time. So the garden has kind of been let go, or it's my laboratory where I'm growing things that I can photograph. So it's, um, yeah, it's been super busy, but nice. And so I'm just going to take a guess for mastering the art of vegetable gardening. You kind of riffed off of Julia Child and mastering the art of French cooking, and you used your garden as a fantastic and active laboratory for growing and trialing and observing and reporting on these varieties that would end up in the book. Therefore, I am imagining that this past summer in your garden has been a sort of abundant and cacophonous, beautiful flower garden trial location, yes? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think it's it's often described as a trial garden. I think design factored in less this year, mm-hmm. um, more of a I have to grow everything kind of. I, you know, I have this idea I have to grow everything if I'm going to photograph it myself, not use stock photography and... Um, and uh, it's maybe it's just an excuse to grow everything myself, as <laughs> a lot of plant geeks want to do. Yeah. But yeah, the garden is a little. I'm not accepting garden tours. You know, it looks like there are certainly a lot of weeds, and it was a good summer for that. But yeah, it's a little bit of everything. Right, right. So. Give us a little bit of a description of your actual garden. Listeners may remember your name. Those of the listeners who aren't familiar with your work already, uh, whether from the book or on your blog or from Instagram. But you were the specialty grower behind the plants people and for Robert Hahn's Inc. When we interviewed Bob and his daughter earlier this year, they referred to the fabulous specialty grower who did specifically a phenomenal range of sweet peas. So that is Matt Mattis. Tell us, Matt, like where is your garden located? What zone are you in? And describe some of the flowers you've been trialing there this summer for the book. 
Sure. Well, I'm in Worcester, Massachusetts, which is in the center of Massachusetts. And it's USDA zone 5B, technically, mm-hmm. although we can grow some 6 and sometimes some zone 7 plants in protected areas. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a commercial grower. I am. I have a hobby greenhouse. Uh, it's a glass greenhouse about 30 feet long, 16 feet tall, where I grow plants for my own pleasure and for friends. Um, the Hanses I knew from, I sit on the board at Tower Hill Botanic Garden. And Michelle Hans also sits on the board. So the two of us, um, we became friendly. And then her husband, Robert Hans, who owns Robert Hans Associates and Landscape Collaborative, um, offered a position for me this past spring to work as a horticulturist, which, you know, they're wonderful people, wonderful clients in the Boston area with sort of the premier gardens in suburban Boston. And these are clients who want something interesting, something you can't buy at the wholesale grower. And since I already grow these, and I was working with the Hans on their private property in Chestnut Hill and in Vermont, it just seemed natural to grow and offer some of these plants to their clients. There's only so much I can grow in my greenhouse, so with you know five or 10 clients, I can grow a number of unusual annuals or perennials, things like uh, hollyhocks from Germany or delphiniums that grow seven feet tall, things that, uh, you know, people want that are special. Mm -hmm. Um, My garden is, it's an old garden. It's a family garden. People who read my blog know that I'm third generation working in that garden. It was my grandfather's home that he built in 1906. And uh, so it's an old garden. I had seven uncles that were raised in that house. And my dad was sort of the middle child. But two of them were horticulturists. So the garden was planted in the 20s and 30s and 40s. So there are, it feels a bit park-like. Uh, and though it sounds fancy, it's in Worcester. If you know Worcester, it's you know a working-class mill town. Uh, we have woods behind us, so it feels very private and park-like. But it's, uh, it's overgrown. It's, it has a lot of the problems that an old garden would have, like lots of invasives. But um, also the charm and beauty of you know, mature trees that are rare. We have a Davidia, one of the first collected from, you know, the early 1960s that's, you know, 50 feet tall. So uh, it has good bones to work with. Um, It's a formal garden. So it had, and by formal, I mean, basically it was designed in 1926. So it had, believe it or not, a golf putting green. (laughs) And no one in my family plays golf. Um, But we had a special lawnmower that would trim it. Um, that took two people to push and it had rollers on it. And it has, you know, lead holes and flags and the whole kit, which we've let go. But it was that type of garden, badminton court, you know, a goldfish pond, a form of rose garden, lots of straight stone paths. But uh, after we built the greenhouse, it's, you know, it's filling in all the spaces with plants now. I don't think we have 10 square feet of lawn anymore. There's so much to follow up on in there. First of all, the beauty and the depth of attachment that comes from being in a place where three generations of your family have actively gardened is just, it's a really 
unique, I think, in this day and age and beautiful connection to the land that not all of us have. And you write about it beautifully in the beginning of Mastering the Art of Vegetable Garden, this concept that you know, this soil has been worked by horse and plow in the beginning uh, all through these generations is a connection that is very deeply rooted, to use a gardening metaphor. You also talk about, which I find really compelling in the art of um, mastering the art of vegetable gardening, this idea that why we garden for what we garden has changed significantly over these same generations of your family being on this place, just as Worcester has changed all around you. And so on the one hand, you gardened because um, you needed to eat. You just needed to supply yourself with food. And then, you know, came World War II and you were gardening for you being the kind of, you know, royal you, all of us, were were gardening because there was scarcity during the war. And there were patriotic reasons for getting out there and gardening. And now you garden in your vegetable garden because you want really good quality food that is no longer necessarily available, especially outside of big urban areas. It's not easily accessible to every person. So growing it yourself is one of the great ways to come to this result that we want. So I would love you to describe the, you know, some of the flowers that you were trialing and maybe what your your garden flowers are looking like today as you're coming towards the end of uh, the growing season in what is a pretty cold zone, 5B, um, and can get wicked winter weather and heavy snow and humid, you know, frost, frigid, cold, not like the cold in the, the drier west, which kind of adds to an urgency in your flower garden season because it is a known limited space of time. Yeah, Worcester is located in what they call the North Atlantic uh, snow belt. Mm-hmm. So, I don't, you know, the weather channel, you may see a nor'easter coming up the northeast, and Boston could have two inches of wet snow and then rain. Well, Worcester will get 36 inches of snow, you know. So the, and there are many years we have over 100 inches of snow on the ground. So trying to maintain a glass greenhouse that's single-pane glass, which was totally impractical to build, um, it's it's a bit of a luxury. Um, so I keep it cold. And in, the, in a cold greenhouse, you can grow so many things, and I was really surprised, especially when I read old gardening books from the 19th century or even late 18th century that often were written in, in New England, um, of the plants these you know, growers were growing. And many of these were you know, merchant ship um, owners or captains who were members of the Massachusetts Horticultural Society. Um, they grew a lot of South African seeds, a lot of South American seeds, um, Asian seeds, and vegetables. And these are the same plants that thrive in my cold greenhouse now. And they're blooming at the same time that, you know, I have a book from 18, 1805 that talks about Lacanalia, uh, the Cape uh, hyacinth, uh, which you just rarely see today. You know, they would list 30, 50 species that they were growing in New England, blooming for a certain week. And in my greenhouse, the same thing is blooming, or camellias, or uh, different species, narcissus. So it's very interesting to see that things really haven't changed under glass when it's gardening. Mm-hmm. Of course, in California, these are growing outdoors. But, mm-hmm. you know, in in the Northeast or even, let's say, New York Northeast, which is 
was sort of the center of indoor horticulture or gardening two, three hundred years ago. Very little has changed. But those flowers that they were growing, many of them we don't see anymore. You know, the commercial, and I have nothing against the commercial uh, side of horticulture. Uh, and I certainly understand working with plant breeders, the you know, necessities of a plant that's sterile or one that you know, grows well or grows to a certain height, uh, can survive in a six-pack or a gallon container at a nursery and be shipped. I get all that. But there are just as many that you will never find at a garden center or at a, um, you know, a large hardware store because they have to be grown from seed. You know, annual poppies, for example. And um, these were once so popular as cottage garden plants. And through maybe up until World War II, these were commonly grown. Everyone knew how to grow them. And it's kind of an art that was lost. I, that's what I find fascinating. So old horticulture, rediscovering old horticulture, how do you make it manageable for today's gardener? So in this flower book, that's what I'm showing. I'm showing many step-by-step uh, descriptions and photos on how to grow many of these hard to grow or what are perceived to be hard to grow annuals most of them you know are direct sown mm-hmm. did you start them in the greenhouse like when you began starting to trial um, first of all it must have been a little complicated to source them um, and that probably is fascinating part of the book in and of itself is finding the seed that you wanted to trial to start with. And did you start a lot of them in the greenhouse or did you start with direct sowing them outside and seeing how it worked from that point? Well, this is where I deviate from what a lot of the, let's say the common advice you'll find in a gardening book or blog. Um, Although these are direct sown, um, if you're a horticulturist, you know, or let's say you're a horticulturist at a botanic garden, you know that as romantic as it sounds to sprinkle bread seed, opium poppy seed around the garden or on top of the snow, they're still going to choose to come up where they want to go. But you can very carefully start them in a cool greenhouse or on a porch or in a bright garage if you individually and painstakingly set an individual seed in a cell and grow it to its cotyledon stage or maybe its first pair of leaves and carefully slip it out of the cell into the garden where you want it. So although it sounds difficult, I think most gardeners are capable enough to do that to, and to understand like that the roots shouldn't touch the side of the pot. Or as soon as they start to emerge, you need to carefully slip these plants out and set them into the garden in early spring. And there are so many annuals you can do this with. We're used to buying annuals in bloom at the garden center, and and uh, and clearly that's what sells at garden centers. People want to see the color. They want to to know that the plant is going to grow, like, uh, and match with another color in the garden. It's become fashion. But after a few years of gardening, I think all of us who are gardeners understand that. I don't need to see a flower in my six-pack that I'm growing, you know, a, a scabiosa in or a salpiglossus. Um, I know they're going to come in six weeks later. Yeah. And there's that joy of finding plants that you don't see everywhere, that aren't in everybody else's garden, that you have chosen and nurtured yourself because that is exactly what you wanted. There is a just deep satisfaction in that relationship with with your plants in the garden. So let's step back a little bit 
You've described quite a bit of, of where you came from and to some extent how you became a gardener. But just because we're surrounded by gardening as children doesn't mean we become gardeners. So, so take us back a little bit to your direct earliest influences and how you grew up. If you had siblings, did you all become gardeners? And did you uh, go on to to train in the field or share with listeners perhaps your unlikely pathway to what you're doing? <laughs> yeah, this question comes up a lot and I think <laughs> about it so often and, and try to imagine how it all played out. But I think it was destiny that I would become a gardener. I just fought it my entire life. Um, both my parents gardened, um, they, but they were both working parents. My mother is an accountant for the city, and my father was an artist, a painter, um, and later an illustrator. He would illustrate the feature parade covers uh, for Feature Parade magazine for many years. So for about 45 years, he was a professional artist. But he worked nights, and my mother worked days. So... We had huge vegetable garden, um, probably, and and it, almost an acre probably if you add them all up. And uh, Depression era parents, because they grew everything, because my mother canned everything that they grew or froze. Um, so it was that kind of culture I grew up with. It seemed normal, and it was an ethnic neighborhood. It's a Lithuanian Polish neighborhood, so all our neighbors had gardens. All my friends' parents had gardens. It, it just seemed normal. I, I did have my first vegetable garden at, I don't know, maybe age four. It was before kindergarten. And I remember planting gourds and and sunflowers, you know, everything a kid would grow. And um, the, sun, the, the gourds grew and, and bore, you know, like a half a bushel of white egg-shaped gourds that were so unexciting that it was devastating. <laughs> <laughs> but my dad took them into his studio and he painted them all to look like gourds. So I thought, okay, that that kind of worked for me. And gradually my little garden got bigger and bigger with every year. I was probably around 10 when I started secretly getting more serious about plants. I had and most kids that age are playing baseball or have a treehouse. My treehouse was full of plants and and just things I were growing in random pots I would find around the yard and take cuttings and I was playing with horticulture, grafting even because my you know, my friend's neighbors across the woods, he was father would be grafting plants. So I was playing with horticulture then. And I was never a good student in school. I was always bad in math, really bad with numbers. Still I am. And when high school came around, my parents wanted to send me to a private school. And I remember not passing the exam to get in. It devastated and my mother, because she worked for the city, was able to get me into an agriculture program at a high school, at vocational agriculture. And I became... And they had a greenhouse. So I became a member of Future Farmers of America, and that just sort of, you know, I became president of Massachusetts Future Farmers of America and, and always in the horticulture group. Those were my friends. That was my sport team. So uh, there was no escaping it. I think the pivotal point there, though, was because I was in this agricultural program, I had to take a summer job, sort of early release from school. and. I was fortunate enough to land a position with an important garden in Worcester, Massachusetts, which was a Fletcher Steel designed property, uh, a private estate for uh, Helen and Robert Stoddard, which you see published in a lot of books. It's certainly featured in Fletcher Steel books. And uh, she was a horticulturist. So I think it's one of the few Fletcher Steel gardens that was designed for someone who was a horticulturist. 
And uh, I remember 15 years old going on the interview and uh, her taking me outside. She was a character and having me take notes on the interview. Like, this is a Daphne Musarium or, you know, this is a Saxophagia longifolia. And uh, two weeks later, I come back for a second interview and she took me outside without the notebook and asked me, and she quizzed me on all these plants. So, uh, and I remembered and I got the job. It was a summer job that I kept for six years, right up into college. And uh, only now do I realize, because I'm being asked to speak on the, that summer job work experience at a Fletcher Steel Garden, because I knew the plant lists he had and the moss steps and all this, it was very influential. And I realized how valuable that was, you know, even 40 years later. Yeah, hardest so, job uh, interview you ever had, probably, and the, <laughs> the the best horticultural training you've ever had. Oh my gosh! Yeah, it was a huge rock garden too, and lots of collections of alpines, and taking care of gentians, and collecting seed, and starting them in the greenhouse. So all this before college, and then in, I went to a University of Massachusetts Stockbridge School of Agriculture for a year, because the dean of the school was our advisor for the state Future Farmers of America. And I, I realized um, it wasn't for me. I couldn't, I knew all the plant names, not, I mean, not to sound arrogant, but, you know, he'd take a dendrology class and I already knew all the Latin names of all the trees and shrubs. I needed to do something more. I wanted to be a wildlife artist. I was always creative. And I know it sounds like a crazy career, but I, I always felt I, if I combined my visual talent with, with uh, horticulture, that would make sense. And it was either that or be an ornithologist. Those are the two things I wanted to be. So um, clearly influenced by my dad, who was a painter and was very active in Audubon and you know, hung out with Roger Torrey Peterson and banded birds and would take us out of school to go bird watching for the you know, spring migration or fall migration. So I was really influenced by all those things, sort of nature, working for a Fletcher Steel Garden, and, and knew that I wanted to do something that involved either conservation or plants or birds. Um, and in college, you know, I went to another, I went to Unity College in Maine after that for four years and majored in environmental science and totally enjoyed it. Um, focused more on birds, I think, at that point, but also secretly loving wild native plants and, and enjoying horticulture, but as a hobby. And then, of course, like most people after school, you're like, you know, what am I going to do? And I remember my brother telling me, you know, he, and he was in the medical field. He's like, you're not going to make money as an ornithologist. And uh, having a mother that's an accountant always reminds you of that, right? So <laughs> You have to I'm, pay the bills. You have to. You have to pay the bills, <laughs> right. So, and I was the youngest by far. The, you know, clearly the accident of the family is like 12 years between my siblings and me. So uh, I applied to, of all places, Shamanad uh, University of Honolulu, because I had friends that were going there, and you know, when you're 22, that's what you do. And got accepted on a piano scholarship because I played piano, and um, majored in fine arts. So, and I loved the plants there, of course. So that was good. But always keeping plants as a hobby. And then after college, I, like most kids, didn't know what I wanted to do. And uh, I worked in an, uh, an art supply store. It was Charette here in Boston. I don't know if you remember them. So it's where architects would buy other materials and letterset type and all that. And this is like the early 80s. And people were coming with their portfolios. And they're showing, you know, logos they designed and 
and they were working for newspapers or magazines, and I thought, I could do that. So I put together a fake portfolio, redesigning a bunch of ads, and uh, you know, using rubdown type, and got a job at Boston Magazine as, uh, as an advertising designer. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Matt Mattis is the third generation of his family to cultivate the land he lives and gardens with. A graphic and advertising designer in the toy industry for much of his career to date, he has a strong practical and aesthetic sense, which he brings to bear on his lifelong love of plants and gardening. Stay with us. We'll be right back for more with Matt. Hey, it's Jennifer, and it's October 31st, Halloween. In the ancient Celtic spiritual tradition, this is the time of Samhain. I am of strong Scot and Irish descent, and while I was not raised with historical Celtic traditions, they resonate with me as a gardener and as a person of settler colonial background, trying to figure out that line between cultural appreciation and cultural appropriation, and the wide gray ocean of meaning, and making meaning out of the cycles of our lives in between them. In modern times, Samhain is usually celebrated from October 31st to November 1st to welcome in the harvest and usher in the dark half of the year. Celebrants believe that the barriers between the physical world and the spirit world break down during this time, allowing more interactions between humans and the other world, whatever that may be. These annual cycles of growth and light, contraction, rest, and darkness, are ones I find plants people and gardeners particularly in tune with. These are some of the relationships offered to us as a result of our relationships to the soil and plants and their visitors, whom we tend and nurture as a community of people. In this time of seasonal transition, from fall to winter here, from spring to summer on the other side of the world, for me personally, transitioning from one age to the next this coming week, and for us globally, heading toward the end of a decade. What are our garden-based goals in this next season? What are our intentions for this next decade? For our gardens, our global climate, our wide world. One of my goals is to keep talking to as many of you as I can every week to keep holding these plants people journey stories up as maps and role models and individual points of brightness, altering the collective consciousness for the better. And I'm happy to be here together. If you're listening to this, you're likely a regular listener to the CP podcast. And if you are, make sure to check out the November 1st of You From Here newsletter over at cultivatingplace.com. I have some fun, exciting, a little bit scary news and fabulous artwork to show you on another project expanding the world of gardening as an important branch of cultural literacy. I think you're going to like it. I can't wait to share it with you. Now, back to our conversation with Matt Mattis, plantsman, writer, photographer, and garden and plant geek. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. 
We're back to our conversation with plantsman Matt Mattis of the Growing with Plants blog. From that to his first book, Mastering the Art of Vegetable Gardening, and now at work on his second book about interesting and unusual flower garden additions, Matt is a plant geek through and through. But his journey has had some interesting twists. When we left the conversation, he'd shared with us his experience working at a Fletcher Steele designed garden in high school to becoming a graphic ad designer. And as we come back, he's heading into the world of toy design. Yep, that's right, toy design. I ended up at toy company Hasbro. Uh, most people out there, if they're not in the plant world, they know me more for that. Uh, I spent 30 years there uh, as a creative director. Um, if you're a My Little Pony collector, you know you've seen full-page pictures of me in all the pony books. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm not a brony, but um, I I love that job so much. And I don't know if you've seen this, if you've heard this from other, let's say, plant people, but um, you can love two jobs and two careers, you know, at that that gave, gave me, it gave me the income and the resources to build a greenhouse. Um, I was able to travel the world, you know, been to most every country, most every state. And it kept gardening as a hobby for me, which I, I knew quickly I did not want to work in retail. And I didn't want to have a nursery or, or be a floral designer. Approaching horticulture this way allowed me to build a glass greenhouse allowed me to collect rare plants, build collections. And then, you know, after 20 years or so, you realize, all right, I have this, I've been trained as a creative, you know, I can edit film, I can do photo shoots. Uh, I directed photo shoots for Hasbro for 15 years in New York. I can, you know, I know digital technology. Um, how do I combine this all together? And that's how the blog started. And what year did the blog start? And um, just to to refresh uh, listeners' memories, it's the blog is called Growing with Plants, and it is uh, it is a wonderful blog to follow. So it started in two thousand six. Actually, it was around. I think that the second pivotal thing in my life was nine eleven. Not that I was that closely involved with it. However, I did fly out of Boston the morning before. Um, on the same flight numbers and was in Florida working for Disney on a project and flying back through Pittsburgh to Boston when it happened. So I remember everyone in Hasbro, were, they were trying to get a hold of me. No one could get a hold of me. It was in the air. It was just, you know, a little too close for comfort. And I remember being stuck in Florida, for, you know, at Animal Kingdom Lodge for four days watching it on the news, thinking, this is surreal. I need to get out of here and rent a car, and I'm going to build a greenhouse. <laughs> you know, so I'm going to, you know, I'm going to sell some stock, build a greenhouse. And on the way home, I even stopped. I remember every Home Depot, Lowe's, and nursery, Orchid Nursery buying plants for this imagined greenhouse I was going to build. You know, so I'm, I'm literally driving through, you know, on the New York throughway, past New York, watching the smoke go up with my car full of camellias thinking, I don't really want to, f yeah, I was flying to, you know, to Europe, to Asia, uh, two, three times a month. And uh, life is so fast at that point, you know, you're buying suits at Barney's and you're, you're having meetings at, 
you know, big agencies in LA and it was all fun, but I wanted to slow down and I, I, I knew this is what I wanted to do. So to get back to my soul. So within a year I had the greenhouse and then digital photography, if you remember, came out just around the same time, which just made things a lot easier. So by 2005, I had all these book ideas and I was pitching them to like Timber Press and other publishers. And they're all like, these are way too geeky. No one's going to buy this book, even though the photos were beautiful and the design was beautiful. So um, 2005, I said, well, I'll take all these assets I've created, five years of photos, and I have all the props, and start a blog. And within a week, it was on CNN. So I was really lucky. They were doing a story on gardening blocks. And, and then it took off with like a million hits a month. And since then, it's been, it's been wonderful. And that was great. I have a lot of readers, and it's hard to imagine been doing it that long. Yeah. And it's, real, it's really just a diary blog. It's not even a step-by-step how-to blog. or It's just here's kind of the crazy things I'm thinking about right now or growing, and here's what's in the garden right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a, and especially if, I don't know if, if it's especially, but as someone who's in a very different uh, zone and place, it's always a great escape to come and visit your blog and see pictures. And um, and I, I feel this way about your books too. You have such a strong aesthetic and the story of your gardening life with your partner and this land is, um, it's always engaging and it's very human. I want to just give a little space to this story about how 9-11 recalibrated for you as well as for all of us, I think, most of us, how we want to spend our time and what is what is valuable, what is the currency we want to give our time and attention to. And to have that be one of the resets for you moving toward incorporating plants into your whole life, uh, as, as well as your great love for your graphic design and the work at Hasbro all those years, um, I think is really powerful. And you can feel that personal care and investment in what you write and how you put it together, Matt, and in your affection as well as knowledge for the plants that you share with us in in your books and in your in your blog and clearly with people um, in the Northeast like um, the Hanses and other clients. And I think there's something fabulous about the fact that it didn't come into your professional income earning life until this point in your maturity and clarity that had you taken the professional route with horticulture earlier, maybe some of the joy uh, would have been would have been altered somehow. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think um, that's kind of where I've ended up in my mind about it. Anyway, um, I whenever I did have a job that involved horticulture, and it might have been in college, you know, summer jobs, holiday jobs, working at a florist or at a nursery, I quickly learned to lose the joy. And I think we could say this about design too, having control over what you choose to create with has a lot to do with how much you enjoy it. You know, I could, I change what I grow every year. I'm editing, 
I find that I use a lot of the same skills I used in directing design uh, because you're curating, you're being an art director or a creative director of your own garden. You are editing all the time. You are looking both at the very new and what might be next, and you're looking in the past and seeing what influences there are and what can you revisit. At Hasbro, for the last eight years, I was in a high-concept futuring group as a futurist, and we would have a prescience calendar where we would look at cycles and, and say that, you know, this is how to say how the Transformers movie came around. Um, because dads now who are 35 had transformed when they were kids. So you're looking at um, these cyclical events or cycles that naturally happen. So if I apply that to plants, I, I can see it happening on blogs of other sort of plant collectors that they're wondering about what did, what did Mary Todd Lincoln grow? You know, what, what would be at a wedding or a funeral in 1870? what would be grown in a conservatory in 1845? And why, we ha why haven't we revisited that? So things like mignonette or scented violets and forcing lily of the valley, these are things that really interest me because they're very special. Today it's like food. We, food is special and it's sensual. And when it's mass marketed or available to everyone, you kind of want that next flavor or experience something that you've never experienced before. I mean, have you ever smelled mignonette? You know, so I had never smelt it and I wanted to grow it. And I've tried for years to grow it because it's not easy. And, you know, I'll listen to a blog by Margaret Roach and, and she's talking about she wants to grow it too. So I hear I hear this repeated, you know, across sort of my peers that we want to experience something new. You get bored sometimes with the same thing or you want to revisit something. So gardening's very much like that. In fact, you factor in nostalgia, new experiences. Uh, we all have a personal experience with fragrance or with the beauty of plants or the curiosity of a rare plant. So I think all those things factor in. So it is very much like design or architecture that, um, you know, we want what's new or what's old. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place, a consummate plantsman. As working hobbyist for many years, Matt Mattis is now at it full-time as a grower, blogger, author, and photographer. We'll be right back with more after a break to hear about Matt's continuing plantsman's journey. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud this week, a couple of things. I've had more comments than usual from you all these past few weeks, letting me know how much the conversations with David Abelo and Tucker Fitzpatrick resonated with you all and got you thinking about culture and gardening, what grows it and what diminishes it. It's been great to hear from you. I had notes from Issa Cato in Aspen, from Mandy in Sussex, England, from Amy in Santa Cruz, California, and from Josh in East Tennessee, all with thoughts on this interesting, complicated, compelling thinking. So what about you? What does a culture that values gardening look like to you? 
What are the marks of it? Does it come from the base up or down from somewhere above us? What do we do to grow it? I'd love to hear more and share thoughts from each of you along to us all. So be in touch if you feel so moved. Send us a voicemail or an email to cultivatingplace at gmail.com. And now back to the garden culture of Matt Mattis, third generation plantsman working with the soil and interesting plant life of his home ground in Worcester, Massachusetts. This is Cultivating Place, Conversations on Natural History and the Human Impulse to Garden. We're back now to our conversation with Matt Mattis. When we left off, Matt was exploring some of the universal cycles of a gardener's desire, the importance of valuing and preserving variety and rarity. Also, our cycling interests in the new, the old, and the unusual. This is important from Matt's perspective for the sake of the genetic pool, for the sake of independence in seed and plant economies, but also for our own curiosity and engagement as gardeners. As we come back, Matt is likening our gardening culture's need to learn more about these concepts to how the culture has shifted regarding food in the past few decades. It sort of jumped off of DIY where now you could get very high quality artisanal food that's different regionally and very special and we're very appreciative of that. Plants haven't gotten there yet, but it is starting. And I don't dismiss the whole Home Depot, Lowe's, commercial, proven winners products. I mean, I use those too, Mm -hmm. but they are mass marketed and they are. I work with a couple plant breeders um, closely. Um, Daryl Propes, the epimedium guy, is one of my best friends. We've known each other for 35 years. And he's working with Coreopsis now. And his acres of Coreopsis, we bring in these big wholesale growers and plug growers from around the world. And I don't know if people understand that business, but it is global. And there are needs that have to be met, like a plant has to root easily. It has to survive shipping. Mm -hmm. It has to survive in a gallon pot. So like I said earlier, that's I get that part. But if I took you through those fields and you would see a five-foot tall, you know, a rusty brown coreopsis that's covered in thousands of flowers. You'd say, well, I've got to have that in my garden. And, <laughs> and he'd be like, no, 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 they don't want that. You know, it's it doesn't meet any of the needs. It, it won't bloom in a pot, even though it's, you know, four feet in diameter and covered in flowers and sterile, and it's it's still not something the trade wants. So there are a lot of plants and flowers out there that don't fit the model for wholesale horticulture. Um, so the, there are independent growers around the country, and I think like Annie's Annuals, for instance, that you can order, um, it's crazy because you're in California, but you can order California wildflowers for the Northeast. There are always, you know, whether it's a Clarkia or or Phyllocelia, Phyllocelia campanuloides, it's campanularia, that are just magnificent spring blooming annuals you will never find at a garden center you know so if if there are more independent backyard nurseries that could grow these i know of one in southern vermont you know bunker i hate to say it because now people will go there but i want them 
to survive as well. So That balance, want to tell, don't want to tell. <laughs> well, it's true. I go up yeah. to Bunker Farm in southern Vermont, and you know, I know Helen there, and she's a young couple, and they grow amazing rare annuals. And there's Paige Dickey, and there's you know, there's a handful of us that go there and buy her out. And um, but other people can do this um, with a hoop house, or you know, it's this is a great business. It's an artisanal business that I hope takes off, and hopefully it will balance the trade. Yeah, and and that's such a cyclical thing as well. I mean, you look back thirty years here in California, and the the entire West Coast, not just California, the entire West Coast was just fertile with independent small growers passing plants, you know, little mail order businesses, and they couldn't compete as land became more expensive, as the wholesale industry became more um, cemented, they couldn't compete and they, they went out of business and they became quite rare themselves. And now there are these little glimmers of hope that small growers are finding these artisanal niches that they can thrive in and maybe make a comeback and give models to other people wanting to start it of, you know, what kind of communities to try and start them in that they'll get enough support, like different models for for funding and income streams so that they don't go out of business with one bad season. I mean, it's it that is cyclical, just like the kinds of flowers and, and vegetables we are, we are hungry for as gardeners is cyclical as well. Right. And I think when I look at, well, if I put my big business hat on, right, so being in a high concept group at a Fortune 100 company, I look at it that way too. And I'm, I'm saying if you're a proven winners or a big branded horticulture company that exhibits at Cultivate and you have, you know, you're developing Calibracoa and, you know, amazing perennials that are ever blooming. Why not start a small division, you know, a pop-up or a small artisanal division that specializes in horticultural plants or plants, professional plants, you know, plants that, perennials that do grow four feet tall and four feet wide that aren't in bloom in a gallon container. You know, I think these are opportunities for even nurseries like White Flower Farm or, you know, the, the sort of the older model of nursery that could offer, you know, a meadow in a box or a Piet Odolf garden or, you know, interesting, you know, northern annuals that aren't in bloom yet. And this brings me, you know, I think very – this brings us very firmly into this concept of horticultural literacy, which is a, a, a literacy that um, maybe experienced a couple of decades of waning and is – I hope that's my – part of my job is to – try and make sure that it is once again waxing and improving and expanding so that our expectations, and this comes up in, in so many of my conversations with guests, um, the idea of, you know, helping as a cohort of people who garden, helping the rest of the world redefine what is beautiful, what what are our expectations at a nursery, is it really important that it's in bloom if we can figure out uh, how to translate the beauty of this plant to a person without force-feeding it hormones to make it bloom in a pot 
right when it's at the nursery. You refer to Annie's annuals. She she has this concept nailed. And I think that is that is the importance of horticultural literacy hopefully being contagious in a greater part of the community, even if you aren't an obsessive plant geek like you or or me. And I am a far less knowledgeable plant geek than you are. <laughs> but I, I, I am more of a generalist uh, home gardener plant geek. So how do you see it from your seat, this idea of horticultural literacy? And, and does it feel like it's growing and expanding to you? Um. I'm an optimist, so I <laughs> I want to believe that it is. I, I, that I can look at it two ways. First, I look at how we think about food differently today. And I'm going, this is where the whole Julia Child reference comes in, where if you go back to the 1960s and 70s, you know, we, in, especially in North America, we never would buy a truffle or, you know, even eat an avocado outside of California. And somehow quickly we've elevated food in, as not just something we enjoy, but something we appreciate in so many levels, whether it's, you know, regardless of how you think of food, it's whether it's organic or if it's fine French cuisine, it's we sort of want it all today. And we can walk into a supermarket and find pine nuts and sun-dried tomatoes that you couldn't find, you know, 25 years ago. Um, and you can find with vegetables, you're starting to see this happen, right? You're seeing watermelon radishes or black radishes at Whole Foods. And if you look at a vegetable book from the late 1800s, they're talking about black radishes and watermelon radishes. So they're not new. It's just we've forgotten about them for 100 years. And, and chefs are using them. So we're integrating them into our life. So I think we've been trained on the food side pretty well. On the plant side, I'm concerned. You brought up this one soapbox I drag out. It has to do with hormones on plants. And, and I don't want to be that person. Um, and although I do understand the needs of commercial horticulture, it's really product design. There's no difference from My Little Pony to Coreopsis. You know, it's about the name, it's about the color, it's putting seven colors together for a collection. It's exactly the same thing. Um, it's a product. It has to be packaged. It has to work in the package. Everything has to... You have to check off all those boxes. But um, it's kind of horrifying to think about how many hormones are sprayed on plants or the chemicals that are used on plants. And, and I am not on that soapbox either about a lot of... Chem I think some chemicals are good. I mean, sometimes you have to use an insecticide in a greenhouse. But not on my vegetable plants. And I don't want my vegetable plants sprayed with a growth regulator, a PGR, a plant growth regulator that keeps them short and stocky. And that's done commercially all the time. So that I think people are blind to. I think that's a book that has to be written just to understand. You know, I think most people are used to going to a big box store and buying a chrysanthemum, which they think naturally looks like that, <laughs> a mound that is being marketed at back to school time now, not when it normally would bloom, which is, you know, the third week of October, second week of October. You know, so we've all been trained to want things just like you want tomato plants earlier and you shouldn't. 
you know, from the beginning of the season to the end, right up until, let's say, the holidays when you're getting, you know, holiday plants that have been sprayed to be dwarf. That's that's all kind of horrifying because I think we're training sort of the non-horticulturists to expect that. That's what it should look like. So I think there's a lot of catching up there. I think with plants, we need to catch up to where the food industry, where we are with we thinking about food, because it is us, the consumers, that change the food industry, right? That's right. And I ask these buyers that come to look at the fields of Coreopsis if they use any consumer insights, and they don't. You know, they're just like, oh, no, we need a pink one, and we need a yellow one, and we need a white one with a red spot, but not a yellow one with a red spot, because that didn't sell two years ago. Right. I mean, this is really how they think. And if I show them, you know, a chestnut colored one or an orange one they're like no 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 I don't like orange and then they go play golf and eat their steak <laughs> it's just like buyers in the toy industry so we need to somehow break into that cycle and I think the only way we can do that is as consumers ourselves start asking for what we want which is you know do you want a delphinium that grows by feet tall or do you want a cascading petunia that it's okay if it goes to seed <laughs> You know, do you want a cloud of flowers in your garden that attracts pollinators? Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It's been a pleasure to speak with you, and I am looking forward to the new book. Thank you, Jennifer. Thanks, everyone. Matt Mattis is a plantsman, a gardener, and an author. His Growing with Plants blog and his first book, Mastering the Art of Vegetable Gardening, are both inspirational and aspirational for gardeners of all levels. Matt joined us this week from the PRX Podcast Garage in Cambridge, Massachusetts, to share more. Join us again next week when we here in my region mark and honor the anniversary of last year's many large fires in California including the campfire, which broke out on November 8, 2018. We'll be joined by Southern Californian Doug Kent, author of Firescaping, and by two members of the Butte County Fire Safe Council to discuss how gardeners can be critical emissaries of good care practices for soil, habitat, community, and catastrophic preparedness for events like fire, blood, and more, no matter where you live. There are so many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. Hey, I know you want to see some of Matt Mattis's gorgeous photos of gardens, vegetables, and flowers. You can do this by heading over to cultivatingplace.com this week to savor Matt's fabulous images. And while you're there, make sure you're signed up for the Cultivating Place A View From Here monthly newsletter coming out this weekend, because I have some fun, exciting news to share with you all first. I really kind of can't wait for you to see and read more about it. Our show producer and engineer, as always, is Matt Fiddler. Executive producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.